In 2020, Mattel released a Susan B. Anthony Barbie doll. She has smooth skin, light brown hair, and all the youth and beauty of, well, a Barbie doll. But Susan B. Anthony wasn't really in the public eye until her 50s. And most of her well-known activism happened in the second half of her life. She really became most famous at the end of life, and she remains active into her 80s. Other well-known women activists from the era, Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Harriet Tubman, Lucretia Mott, their most well-known activism happened when they were over 52. But today, when we think about activism and feminism, we often think about young women rebelling against their mothers. What do we lose when we forget the radical potential of age? I wonder what would happen if we took seriously this idea that long-lived activists might have their greatest triumphs and feel most accomplished at the end of their lives instead of at the beginning. And what we lose when we remember these, these activists for their achievements when they're younger instead of in the second half of their lives. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the triumphs and challenges of aging. Most people think about aging in terms of physical health, but of course there's much more. Matthew Fullen is a professor of counselor education at Virginia Tech. His research encourages us to think about mental and emotional health in old age as well. You know, a lot of um, people tend to think about the aging process as primarily something where your your physical self is sort of changing and you're having to make shifts to the way that you think about your body. Um, but th there really is this entire breadth of what it means to age well. Um, and we've we've really tried to look for a holistic way to think about the aging process. Do you find that people more often sink into a kind of destructive view of themselves as they age? Or is it 50-50? Some people are happy, some are down. Um, it really is a fascinating kind of split that happens. Um, and there's some, some great research coming out of Yale University that focuses on how our perception of aging really does influence what the aging process ends up being. It, it functions as sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy. So people that have a much more dark and dim um, expectation around aging tend to experience just that. And, and people that have more of an optimistic and hopeful uh, perspective on aging tend to then find more opportunities to invest in themselves, uh, to, to lean into the things that they might have as strengths, and, and tend to have a more positive experience of the aging process. Do you think counseling can work with people who have a dark view of aging? You always think about our happiness level or maybe our unhappiness level has a kind of set point in our lives that we don't deviate much from. Yeah, you know, I think that there is something to that, that, you know, over the years we may have sort of a baseline that we come to, uh, to, to really work from. But there is, you know, opportunity when you're working with a counselor or a coach or someone else who can help you to think about your life from a different vantage point. Uh, to be able to add some additional perspectives about things that maybe you haven't tried yet or aspects of life that maybe haven't gotten the, the, the full attention that they deserve. You know, one, one interesting point related to counseling specifically for people that are struggling as they age is that historically uh, a large proportion of mental health professionals have not been included in the Medicare program, which really then prevented uh, generations of older people from having the same access to mental health care. Um, and that can be something that then is, you know, negatively reinforcing. You know, people don't have the same options. And so they think, yeah, this probably isn't for me. Has that changed recently? You know, it, it actually has, which is really exciting. In December, Congress passed a legislation that would incorporate about 200,000 new mental health professionals into the Medicare program. You know, Virginia Tech and Wake Forest have partnered with an organization that provides senior living in several states. Tell me what you're doing in terms of 
helping find life coaches for the elderly in those places. Yeah, we had this really unique opportunity to identify employees within senior living communities who had a vested interest in the older adults they served having access to wellness coaching. Um, and so we, we found that when we asked the older adult residents, who would you like to be the coach? They oftentimes were pointing to the staff members that were already embedded within their communities. And so we identified a pilot group of wellness instructors and nurses and fitness or activities coordinators. We brought these individuals together, uh, put them through some coach training and gave them a curriculum that they could use to provide these wellness resources to individuals within their community. And now these individuals who are coaching can provide this sort of curriculum and this framework for how to think differently about life and, and, and the pursuit of wellness as people are aging. So what does this do for them that they can't do for themselves typically? Yeah, it, it really provides a framework, you know, so the, the wellness model itself provides a helpful framework of these eight different dimensions of wellness and the specific ways that these might play out for individuals who are growing older. The eight dimensions um, include physical and relational, um, emotional, cognitive, spiritual, vocational, and uh, developmental wellness. Give me examples of some of the kinds of things that people are wrestling with in these counseling sessions. Yeah, so within the individual coaching sessions, the participant will identify two overarching goals that they would really like to focus on over the course of the nine-week program. And we know that people have far more goals than that, but by focusing on those first two, we hope to give them a nice boost of momentum and really create something that they can achieve and that will be sustainable over time. And so we found that you know many individuals did have goals related to um, exercise or maintaining a, a certain level of fitness or act, physical activity. So that's one category. You know, someone might say, I want to be able to um, participate in the, the weekly yoga class that was already being offered, but I didn't think that was something that I could physically manage. And so I want to try that. I want to expose myself to that and start to get more acclimated and move my body in ways that will keep it as healthy and, and limber as possible. And then we might have another participant who says, you know, for me, the primary goals right now are my relationships. You know, the pandemic was hard on relationships. I had to go months, if not years, without seeing certain loved ones. And I feel like I really need to reconnect with my grandchildren, with my adult kids who might live out of state. I want to create more opportunities to say I'm sorry if there was something that got in the way of our relationship. I want to be able to tell uh, people in my life that I love them. You know, so those sorts of intimate relational goals um, are the sort of thing that the person may already have been thinking about, but needed a program like this to really pull it together and, and to start to put a plan into place to make that a reality. The other wrinkle, which is really unique to this program, is that these individuals have their own one-on-one -on -one coaching session with the wellness coach, but they also have group coaching sessions where they come together with other participants in their community and that same wellness coach that they've been working with. And they have more of a group dialogue around these eight dimensions of wellness, around what it's like to be um, an individual who's aging in that particular community. And we found that through those group sessions, the individuals create a sense of, of connection and bond with each other. Um, and so we've had individuals who, when the program ended, decided that they wanted to keep things going. And so they created a lunch group uh, where those individuals could continue to stay connected to each other. What's been hard about it that you maybe didn't expect, but you've encountered? Yeah, you know, some of the challenges resemble challenges of any other new concept or new sort of program. Um, and, and that's, you know, helping people understand some of the verbiage and making sure that, you know, the, the lingo around wellness is well-defined um, and that we're really helping people understand 
exactly what that is and what that isn't. Um, one of the barriers is just that there's a lot of programming going on in these sorts of communities. And, you know, the coaches um, step up and really want to see the program be successful, but they're also managing many other job responsibilities. And so that, that's been sort of the other side of the coin with using the in-house staff members is that you do have to have buy-in from, from their boss to make sure that they have adequate time to run the program and to go through the training that we provided. Um, you know, other pieces are just kind of uh, human nature. You know, there, there's a degree of self-disclosure that this sort of program requires, and some people prefer to remain pretty private, and, and that's their prerogative to do that. Um, but, you know, for this program to be as effective as possible, it does require the participant to share a little bit more openly about uh, aspects of life that, you know, they may be struggling with. And so to tell not only the coach, but maybe also the other individuals in your wellness coaching group that I'm having some trouble with an adult child, or I, I really miss my grandchildren and I wish that they would reach out more often, those can be vulnerable uh, conversations to have. And so some element of, of, of um, vulnerability is required. Well, Matthew Fullen, it sounds like such a wonderful program and a great idea that needs more, more, more. That's our hope. That's our hope. We hope to continue to, to see the fruit um, of program like this, continue to make it more and more accessible to communities across the country, um, and, and ultimately to, to see more older people who are aging well and who are aging well in a manner that they get to define as we help support it. That's wonderful. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Matthew Fullen is a professor of counselor education at Virginia Tech. A lot of feminism is framed around young women rebelling against their mother's values, but that wasn't always the case. Corinne Field is a professor of women, gender, and sexuality at the University of Virginia. She says that in the 19th century, the most public and active feminists were over 50. Corinne, there's a story you tell about the image of Susan B. Anthony on the silver dollar. Tell me that story. Well, Susan B. Anthony was best known in her lifetime when she was older than 50. She really became most famous at the end of life, and she remains active into her 80s. While she was alive, suffragists began celebrating her birthday every year, and that became a big event. And after she died, her supporters continued to celebrate her birthday every year, and they would gather and they would plant stories in the newspaper. They were trying to turn her birthday into a national holiday that would rival George Washington's birthday. So they're doing this every year. And in the 1930s, one of these women decides to use an earlier picture of Susan B. Anthony before she was well known. And this supporter writes, quote, we love Susan at every age, but a little youth would seem more attractive for a change. And this image of Susan B. Anthony becomes the most famous portrait of her and is actually what ends up on the silver dollar. So when, when we see Susan B. Anthony on currency, she's been um, re rejuvenated after the fact. She's been made younger than she was when she was most famous. You have a parallel story about Harriet Tubman. Yeah, so Harriet Tubman has a wonderful biographical film that was made by Casey Lemons in 2019. And I think it's an absolutely terrific film. But it celebrates Tubman's life when she was working on the Underground Railroad and when she led the Combahee River Raid during the Civil War. And she lives into the 20th century. And she spends the later part of her life trying to fund an old age home for black people on her property in Auburn, New York. And she, when that home opens in 1908, she describes that as one of the happiest moments of her life. And 
I wonder what would happen if we took seriously this idea that long-lived activists might have their greatest triumphs and feel most accomplished at the end of their lives instead of at the beginning. And what we lose when we remember these, these activists for their achievements when they're younger instead of in the second half of their lives. When in your career, as you looked into these activist, intellectual, feminist women of this era, when did you first start thinking, I, I revere them in their old age for their activity and their mental prowess? Why do we dismiss that so easily? Was there sort of one story that really popped for you? The reason I got interested in this project is that uh, the women that I'm looking at are all very well known, but I don't think that contemporary feminists have taken seriously how important old age and later life was to these feminists in the 19th century. Feminists were really thinking about issues of old age and you take, for example, Sojourner Truth, who people know as a, a very famous black feminist in the 19th century. In 1870, when she was in her 70s, after the Civil War, she drew up a petition and she asked Congress to provide freed people with land in the West and, quote, erect buildings thereon for the aged and infirm. And she went on to explain that old enslaved people had built up the nation's wealth. They'd worked for years without compensation and that the federal government owed them support in old age. And so she's thinking about racial reparations through the framework of elder care. And she didn't just want the federal government to pay a pension the way the government did for military veterans. She actually wanted the resources to set up an independent black community where black people could establish networks of mutual care and really reach across generations to support each other. And I'm so struck by how this envisions old people as essential to the project of freedom. And you can see the way she's centering issues of old age in her feminist arguments. A book you were working on explores how women activist intellectuals of the 19th century developed arguments for old age justice and old age empowerment for women. Which feminists do you follow in this book? So I'm looking at six women who are very well-known, all of whom became uh, most well-known after age 50. So Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, also um, Lucretia Mott and Frances Harper. In what ways did they ally with each other on the issues of aging women and empowerment and services. So they they meet regularly at anti-slavery conventions and women's rights conventions. They share platforms and um, they, they recognize each other as women who are aging in public. And so one of the things that is interesting about old age is that um, it is an issue that, that cuts across the way we often think about feminism being divided by race and class. Old age was a concern that women from very different backgrounds shared. But as I've said, they understood what it meant to be an old woman very differently. The experiences of particularly working class black women like Sojourner Truth or Harriet Tubman were very different than those of an educated white woman like Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So they're, they're finding common ground in thinking about older women, but they're understanding what it means to be old very differently. So I think we can look at white women who fought for what we might think of as old age empowerment. And in, in the same year the truth circulated her petition, white women in the National Women's Suffrage Organization gathered to celebrate the 50th birthday of Susan B. Anthony. And she was an unmarried suffrage leader 
they held this public birthday and they invited journalists to the event. And newspapers as far away as San Francisco and Hawaii picked up this story and talked about Anthony as, quote, a brave old maid. <laughs> and uh, how interesting it was that a woman who was unmarried would publicly announce and celebrate her age. And one of Anthony's supporters um, explained that women, by which she really meant white women, were respected in their youth for beauty, but they were then denigrated when they grew old. And these white women suffragists turned birthdays into annual celebrations at which they tried to promote new understandings of older women's uh, ability to become leaders and intellectuals and professionals in, in the second half of their lives. And they wanted to see women competing with men at really the highest echelons of power. And so in 1900, 2,000 people gather in Washington, D.C. to celebrate Anthony's 80th birthday. And newspapers then refer to her as the George Washington of the women's suffrage movement. And I think these, this was a self-conscious effort to prove that women had the capacity to actually be president of the United States, not just vote for a president, right? But that if women were ever to become president, it would be when they were older, not when they were young. How were they seen by the public in terms of their age as women? So they are um, widely ridiculed for being not only women who are trying to make their way in public, but old women. And so you see this dismissal of women's rights activists as a, as a whole, as uh, old maids who couldn't find husbands, as ugly old women. And it encourages women to avoid that kind of targeting by trying to look or act younger than they are. And the six women I study really resisted that impulse. They circulated portraits of themselves as they grew older. They talked about growing older on the lecture platform. And they really wanted to change the way Americans saw and thought of older women in power. So aging was part of their very feminism. Absolutely. And I think I'm trying to point out that there was a time when understandings of what it would mean to be equal really focused attention on the need for equality in later life and freeing women from the kind of negative attitudes that impacted them in particular as they grew older. Talk a little bit about what Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote in a famous speech she gave called The Pleasures of Age. It's a wonderful expression of, I think, white feminist aging, uh, perhaps maybe the most classical formulation. So she's turning 70 years old in 1885, and she gathers these supporters around her, women her age and younger women. And she gives this um, marvelous speech that's widely reprinted as a pamphlet in which she says that 50, not 15, is the heyday of a woman's life. And she talks about how she often hears from women that, and by this she largely means middle-class women, that after their children are grown and leave the house, they have no purpose in life. And she urges women to use this time after 50 to pursue political activism, professional careers, advanced study. And she argues that this will not only work towards women's equality with men, but also lead to happy and fulfilled possibilities for women as they grow older. It's really a marvelous speech. I think it's also before a youth culture that really takes off in America in the 20th century. And you can see a moment in the final push for women's suffrage in, in the 1910s when women suffragists themselves embrace that spirit of youth, they turn to techniques of modern advertising and they very self-consciously put forward younger, conventionally attractive women as the face of modern feminism. As feminism starts to shift away from the issues of aging, there's, there's a transition period you write about where the younger women who are feminists, who are emerging, celebrate the older women 
but um, clearly the power is shifting, right? Older women still have power and influence in all sorts of women's organizations, but you see these generational divides beginning to really sharpen where younger women are honoring their elders, but also pushing them onto pedestals, uh, celebrating them for past achievements when older women themselves are trying to still control the feminist agenda. And Again, I think you can see this very clearly with Harriet Tubman, who at the founding meeting of the National Association of Colored Women in the 1890s gets elevated as a mother of the movement. These black women put her on stage and honor her for her achievements. And then she goes around the convention trying to raise money for the old age home that she's establishing on her property, right? So she doesn't (laughs) want to just be celebrated for the past. She wants these other black women to sort of put their money behind her efforts in the present, right? When you look back at this period of time, where do you think we are now? Um, the, The forces around us are so different, and yet they're powerful women's voices in the public sphere, right? There are, and you know, I'm very excited by work by people like Ai-Jen Poo, who leads an organization called Caring Across Generations and is really trying to think about a politics where older people and younger people would come together to think about uh, aging across the lifespan and what people need as they grow older. And this particularly has the possibilities for really alleviating many of the pressures that women feel both as care workers, either paid or unpaid, and as older women. And of course, the vast majority of very old people are women. So, you know, I'm encouraged about how people are thinking about this. And I also sense that there is a perhaps growing recognition that there, you know, there are many, many reasons that we've never had a woman president in this country, but that part of that issue may be the way in which Americans still tend to write off older women as being um, unattractive or unappealing and lacking competence in ways that older men do not. So, you know, hopefully we may see a return to focusing on later life, not as the only topic that feminists need to worry about, but a topic that's worthy of concern. Corinne Field, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. You're so welcome. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity and for focusing on the history of women's aging. Corinne Field is a professor of women, gender, and sexuality at the University of Virginia. Her forthcoming project is currently titled Feminist Aging in 19th Century America, Old Age, Justice, and Power. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Caring for an aging spouse with dementia is hard for anyone, but generally speaking, men and women take different approaches to their caregiving. Tony Calisenti is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. She's exploring how sexual orientation and gender identity affect the way older partners care for their loved ones. Tony, how did you become interested in doing this research on how people care for their spouses and partners who have dementia when they're older? Well, I had been doing a lot of reading in general in the area of aging, and I came across an assertion that husbands experience less stress than do wives when they're caring for their spouses. And that's true, by the way, in terms of what research has shown. But there are a couple problems with that. One is that men don't report stress when they experience it. But the other thing is that this report was saying, well, you know, what we need to do then is to figure out what it is that men do and teach women to do that. And that, I just thought that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You know, you're not going to expect women to do what men do just because that's what they do. It would not fit their own sense of self. So I just decided that I wanted to explore that myself. And I got a grant from the state of Virginia. And 
did a local project of spouses caring for their spouse with dementia. And that was all heterosexual couples. So everything I learned from that study, really uh, what that was about gender, really revolved around heterosexual spouses. So that's really where I got my start from all this. What did you learn about men and women and how they care for dementia and their spouses? Well, first of all, I want to say that I did not see a difference in the sense of men do it better or worse or or women, okay? I think caring for someone with dementia is an incredibly difficult task. And um, I, I talked to men who cried when they talked to me about caring for their wives. So it, there was no lack of concern or affection. But men tend to approach it very differently than women do. Men tended to see themselves as very task-oriented or managerial, they're problem solvers. Whereas women end up believing, and everyone else believes, that they're nurturing and that they're going to care for the whole person. Well, when you're caring for someone with dementia, that's an impossible task because you're going to run into all kinds of noncompliance, wandering behavior, all kinds of behavioral issues. And men just kind of saw it as something else that they had to do. So they weren't happy about it necessarily. But, you know, I had men say to me, well, the doctor says she doesn't have good hygiene. Because again, one of the areas of real conflict often with people that are severely demented has to do with bathing and showering. And so the men would just say, well, the doctor said though her hygiene's no good, so I just have to give her a bath. And they would basically force their wives to take a bath or shower. It wasn't something they enjoyed doing, but they saw it as a task that needed to be done. And then when they did it, they had a sense of accomplishment. Again, this kind of reflects their their work-life mentality. Women, on the other hand, felt like, no, they can't violate his autonomy. They shouldn't try to take away what little he has. And of course, they couldn't force them into bathing, for instance, but it was very surprising to me. I would find that the men would literally get beaten by their wives sometimes because the wives didn't know who they were and they'd fight. They weren't particularly strong themselves because they were old. Some of them had heart issues, but they weren't afraid of it. Whereas women just didn't want to cross their husbands at all. So it's just a very different approach. And practically speaking, therefore, were women often unable to bathe husbands? I'm curious. Um, In this particular case, in that study, they did not have husbands who needed as much help. One of the things that was interesting is that in that study, the men were caring for wives that were far more demented, far more severe than the wives were caring for husbands. But wives were really upset by things like the possibility of incontinence. And not because they couldn't change a diaper, but because, and this is my analysis, they didn't say this per se, but because they, it was too far of a drop in, you know, from the kind of heights that husbands tend to be in traditional relationships. They were the dominant person in the group and to have them need to be diapered was really, really hard for women. I did have one woman who cried and and talked about her husband had just started to experienced some issues in that regard. And she had found him like in the bathtub kicking around his feces. And it just upset her no end because he he didn't remember where he was supposed to go. So he'd gotten into the tub, right? And she just said, you know, I'm not his wife anymore. I'm, I'm this other person now. What happened? You know, we're not equals anymore. So for them, that's what was really hard to deal with. But they didn't have to actually face the problem of bathing. What did you notice when you looked at same-sex couples and how those caregivers, male or female, are dealing with husbands and wives with this? That's the recent study that I'm working on now. If you expand and you want to look at same-sex couples, they don't have the ability to kind of fall back on traditional notions of what men and women do. They have to negotiate those tasks. So you can't just assume one person will be um, a particular kind of worker you know, it could be we share everything 50-50. It could be we pay somebody to do it. It could be I cook you clean, depending on what we like. But the point is, the same divisions don't hold. So I was interested to see how that would impact then how people care for their partners with dementia. And what did you notice when you started that? I know this is early days. Yes, it is early. But I have really seen that the gay men and lesbians I've interviewed 
they don't fall into either group cleanly, but they're kind of just all over in between. And I don't know that that's a better or a worse thing either. Gay men and lesbians are also different in a couple of important ways. First of all, they were all out to their providers, but they still needed to be concerned about how others would respond to them. One lesbian woman told me that I have to come out over and over again anytime she deals with medical staff, for instance, on the phone. She has to ask herself whether she can say that she's calling about her wife or if it's just better to say that she has medical power of attorney. She just doesn't know how they're going to respond. I also had a gay man who had just placed his husband in a very nice facility tell me that his husband had been attacked by another resident there because, quote, he kissed a boy. He had seen his husband give him a kiss. On the flip side, many gay men have lived through HIV AIDS and as a result, they've either given care before or feel that they've had to struggle so much that they're somewhat prepared to be caregivers. Some of them told me that they've just had to be strong for a long time. And both gay men and lesbian women told me that there was really no script for them to follow, which they actually felt was a positive. They felt that they had more latitude because there was no one right way for them to give their caregiving. Tell me the story about the gay man who was trying to think of a way to persuade his partner who had dementia to start wearing an adult diaper and what that signified for you. That's a really good example of taking a very kind of problem-solving approach. How am I going to do this in a way that really honors the other person's sense of personhood? So what he did is he wore an adult diaper all day. He just decided, okay, I'm going to do this. And he not only wore it, but he used it, (laughs) okay? And he just kept it on all day without his husband knowing and then at the end of the day, he, he told me he dropped his pants and showed his husband, look what I've had on. And you couldn't tell. And he said, no. And, you know, he had him like feel it and realize that it didn't leak through. And after that, it became easier than for him to suggest, like when they were traveling, that his husband wear one. Brilliant. Um, and, and maybe this is not a great example, but I had interviewed some people before the pandemic hit, and then re-interviewed them during the pandemic when they've had to be under lockdown and so on. And I was surprised that most people said that they actually liked the pandemic. And I got this mostly, though, from women, both heterosexual and lesbian, but also some of the gay men, that they, they would say things like, it has forced me to be nearby so that I can see how my husband or wife is changing, and it has created greater intimacy with us. A lot of them talked about how life kind of slowed down in a way that made it less hectic and easier to care for them. But I was really struck by the people who talked about how it really fostered a kind of closeness. What was it like emotionally doing some of these interviews? It sounds like some of it is really heartbreaking work. Yeah, it was very emotionally draining, particularly because during the course of my interviews, my mom developed dementia and died rather suddenly and unexpectedly. So as they were talking, I could hear them describing situations I had just been in with my mom. And so sometimes it was kind of tough. So yeah, it was definitely hard At first, were you sort of in disbelief? This is not dementia. She's just being more something. Yeah, but in my mom's case, she had Parkinson's disease. And with Parkinson's, there are a range of cognitive changes that happen. So she was experiencing those changes, as well as we know that hospitalizations can be very disorienting. When she was finally discharged, she suddenly couldn't walk anymore because they hadn't gotten her up and moved around and so on. She'd been seeing a neurologist and... He diagnosed her. We thought at first it was Lewy bodies, but he said, no, it's, it's Alzheimer's. But it happened very rapidly. And the other thing that happens with older people, too, and happened to her as well, is that when older people have UTIs, they become delirious. Mm. That's often the main symptom is deliriousness. So it turned out she was running these constant UTIs, and, and she really was. I mean, she got very, very unlike herself and really delirious. And once they clear up, then... 
then she'd be okay again. So I think that happens a lot more than people realize with older people. Is there any kind of solution that you're finding that makes things better for caregivers? Uh, respite is is a huge, huge key. What do you mean? People need to get away. You cannot do this kind of care 24-7 without any help. I mean, there really needs to be a better system than what we have now. And for most people, hiring respite care is way out of reach, you know, to have someone come into your house. But yeah, there, there have to be better supports for people than what we have. It's really, really emotionally terrifying. What could we do better as a society for people with dementia? That's a tough question, but I, I think one of the things that we need to do is to stop seeing dementia as something horrible. And I know that sounds contradictory, but I think it's harder sometimes on the caregivers than it is for that person. And by that, I mean, if their lives have shrunk and they don't know who you are, that doesn't mean they can't be happy. But we're unhappy because we think, oh, you know, I'm your your child. You don't know who I am. Oh, this is terrible. Mom's not who she was. But mom could actually, she's building an identity every day. Huh. So all of that is simply to say, I think if we treated people with dementia as people and not as who we think they should be, and if the care that we developed for them emulated that, I think it would be really, really helpful. And again, whether it's paid or unpaid care, but we're, I think, kind of caught in a loop of, this is horrible. This person has disappeared. Maybe so, but they're still a person and they're just a different person. I think we have a really hard time with that. Tony Calisenti is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. She's the author of Gender, Social Inequalities and Aging and Nobody's Burden, Lessons from the Great Depression on the Struggle for Old Age Security. Paying for retirement is one of the big stressors of old age. Barry Cobb and Jeff Smith are professors at Virginia Military Institute, and they've been researching what is the best time to start drawing Social Security. So, Barry and Jeff, how long do you each think the U.S. will keep funding Social Security? I mean, 30 years, more? Yeah, my expectation would be for the foreseeable future. So I would not view the U.S. being in any hurry to reduce funding or eliminate funding for Social Security. Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen is that they'll raise the amount of income that's subject to Social Security tax and make some changes like that. But overall, there's been a lot of commitments made, and I think they'll probably stay with those commitments. Once you hit the retirement age where you are fully vested, you can start getting Social Security checks. But the conventional wisdom is wait until you're older and you'll get more every month. Correct. If you take your Social Security before you reach full retirement age, you actually accept a reduction in your benefits. And then if you wait until after your retirement age, up until age 70, then you can actually increase the monthly benefit that you receive. And so in the past, people have said, just wait as long as you can because you're going to get bigger checks. Why not do that? Well, I think if you're strictly looking at the amount of money that you receive in your Social Security payments, you may get paid more in Social Security payments if you wait uh, until you reach age 70. But what we've found is there's other opportunities to do other things with that money if you receive it earlier in your retirement. There are people who are active at 85 or 90, and Jeff will probably be sailing on his sailboat out in Virginia Beach um, up to that point. But a lot of people are probably going to be able to travel, enjoy young grandchildren, do other things when they're, you know, in the few years after they retire. So we kind of think that that's when we might want to consume um, more of our savings and Social Security benefits than, uh, you know, when we get closer to the average age that people live. And you're primarily thinking of people who will be getting Social Security, which is everyone, but also those people who are likely to receive some other form of income, whether it's a large pile of savings or a retirement check. That's correct. And, and we started our research with the assumption that individuals have saved or invested and have some amount other than Social Security. And then we went through and looked at 
the various ages when it when they could consume the most based on the projected size of their social security payment and also their retirement account balance. In the first part of our research, we really looked at all of the possible retirement ages between 62 and 70. And what really allows people to consume more is if they just go ahead and take their social security payments immediately after they retire uh, at age 62 or whatever age they choose to retire. Are you talking about people who are still working at 62, that they should start still taking Social Security and just sock that money away or invest it or whatever, and that over their lifetime, they will likely end up getting more from Social Security than had they waited? I think that's a key question. So we assume that an individual retires at the earliest opportunity. And so once an individual retires, they can either claim their social security payment, or they can start spending from that separate account that they have accrued over their lifetime. And and I think what we need to understand about the way we've looked at it is we're assuming that this is a person who wants to retire at 62. You know, they're, they're making two choices. Given that I'm going to stop working at 62, what age do I want to start accepting social security payments? And then given that I need to replace my income at 62, how much can I consume? For instance, a person might retire at 62, but wait till 67 to accept Social Security and live off their savings. But really what we've found is it's best to just go ahead and accept Social Security at 62 and combine that with your savings to spend. Do you have any idea what most people do when it comes to when they elect to take it? The literature suggests most people, if they... If they retire at age 62, they typically start claiming Social Security not not long thereafter, if not when they retire. So as an example, my brother would always ask me, when should I take Social Security? And my somewhat flip answer to him was, well, tell me when you're going to die. Because if if you can tell me that with certainty, then I can work out the simple equation and tell you exactly when you should take Social Security. The problem is, of course, that that's uh, unknown to all of us. And and so what we have to do is we have to use the probability that any person on average, when they're going to die. And so we use simulated life expectancies to try to help us replicate the results for an average individual. And what'd you come up with? So given that a person has already lived to 62, you know, on average, they're going to live about 20 years longer. It's a little bit uh, longer for females than males. Unfortunately, some will die after a year. Some will die after 35 years. But when we consider the fact that people may want to spend earlier in their retirement, we can suggest a higher spending level because the fact of the matter is on, you know, uh, for a certain percentage of people, you know, they're, they're only going to live a few years after retirement. And, and I think I would add many financial planners and, and probably their customers are more concerned with individuals outliving their retirement account balances than they are if someone dies prematurely. What our research basically does is turn that around and, and say, don't be so concerned about outliving your money so we basically identify the amount that they can spend with very little risk of exhausting all of their other retirement savings. And so when Barry says risk, what he really means is we use up all of our retirement account balance and then we are left to live only on the payment that we receive some from Social Security. But philosophically, you are thinking, you know, the time we want to sail and sow our oats and travel the world is in more youthful retirement as opposed to later. Right. And and again, what we're basically, and I think it's important to remember, is what we're basically talking about is for the average individual. So there, as Barry mentioned earlier, there's always going to be the person who's in their late 80s, early 90s, who's probably more fit than I am at 54. Uh, but in general, I think most of us would prefer to spend the bulk of our retirement savings 
when we have the opportunity, when we have the health, when we're uh, more active and more spry. The method that we've developed, it can be adjusted for people's own risk tolerance. You know, if if they just want a very, very small uh, chance of running out of their money and only living on Social Security, then we can we can use the method that we've designed to resolve for that. If they want to leave, they want to ensure that there's a high likelihood they can leave a very large amount as an inheritance, you know, we can factor that in as well. And so um, it, it, it's not necessarily a method that we've designed that's just for people who want to take a lot of risk. Are there also mistakes that people make that you would caution them to watch out for with Social Security? Well, I think you know, if you go out and search the internet for, uh, you know, the, the 10 biggest mistakes you could make in retirement, you might find several articles that list taking Social Security 470 as one of the biggest mistakes. But what we're saying is definitely in contrast to that. Well, the one thing I would say to be prudent would be an individual should look at how much they'll need in retirement once they retire. And then they should get an estimate of what their Social Security benefit is if they have no other retirement assets. For that individual, it may make more sense for them to continue to work to build up their Social Security payment. Well, Barry and Jeff, this has been a delight. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Barry Cobb and Jeff Smith are professors in the Department of Economics and Business at Virginia Military Institute. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Custo are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. To comment or for the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.